my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, November 7th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. So listeners, this week we are asking for your help to help us stay free um, by completing a short anonymous survey. It will take no more than five minutes, we promise, and your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcasts and its listeners. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win 100 bucks at Amazon. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win, or you send us a really great cookie recipe, and we need some more details. So please go to podsurvey.com slash minds. That's podsurvey.com slash M-I-N-D-S to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. This week, political journalist David Korn joins me as a guest host. It's an election week, and he's the Washington bureau chief at Mother Jones. So I wanted to find out what the election results mean for those of us interested in space and the planet. We'll discuss the election in the first part of the show, and then we'll move on to his interview with astrobiologist David Grinspoon. Grinspoon is a principal scientist at the Planetary Science Institute and the author of two nonfiction books, Venus Revealed and Lonely Planets, The Natural Philosophy of Alien Life, which won the Penn Award for nonfiction. Grinspoon and Korn discuss the science in the new Christopher Nolan movie, Interstellar, which opens today, that starts with the premise that we've managed to screw up the Earth so badly that we need to find a home on another planet. But before we get to the main interview, let's talk about the election results. David Korn, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Great to be with you. So give us an overview of what these new changes mean for people who are concerned about science. Well, you know, when when you report on climate change and climate science, every few months, it seems, we get these stories and sometimes videos of whole parts of the ice sheet in the North Pole, the South Pole, whatever pole it may be, collapsing into the sea. Well, that's kind of what happened on Tuesday in political terms. Uh, for anyone who cares about action to redress climate change, this was like uh, a 
gigantic piece of the polar ice cap just evaporated. And we're that much closer to a very problematic situation. Republicans, as everyone knows, won control of the Senate and they increased their majority in the House and where they've, for the last few years, have done everything they can to prevent the president, Democrats, anyone from making progress on environmental policies that might deal with climate change. The president has been able to do things through executive action and through regulations. But by and large, the idea of having any comprehensive legislation, which the House passed when it was controlled by Democrats in the first two years of the Obama administration, has completely evaporated. And if you can go beyond complete evaporation, I'm not sure that's scientifically possible, that's what happened this week. Um, the folks who were elected in the Senate, Republicans, who will be part of the majority, almost seem to be designed by climate change denialists. Uh, the statements they said uh, at different times, different places, were um, almost unbelievable from a scientific perspective. I, I got a few for you. Should I, should I go over some of those? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, here's like the, you know, some of the worst of the worst here. So Dan Sullivan, Republican of Alaska, um, during the campaign, he said, the jury's out on whether climate change is human-induced. Well, anyone listening to this show knows the jury is not out. David Perdue, yeah, they're back. <laughs> right? David Perdue, who uh, Republican in Georgia, who beat Michelle Nunn, and a guy who was, you know, was the CEO or led Reebok, the uh, the, the Dollar General store, you know, a hard-headed businessman. Um, he said, he told Slate Magazine earlier this year, in science, there's an active debate going on about whether climate change is real. Really? You know, and then Joni Ernst, who comes across as sort of a slicker Sarah Palin, a Republican who won a Senate seat in Iowa, says, I haven't seen proven proof. I like that. I haven't seen proven proof that it is entirely man-made. Entirely man-made. Um, so th th they represent the, I don't know how, what the final number is going to be, six, seven, eight or so, nine new senators who are coming in as the news on the climate change front has just gotten, you know, each week seems to be getting worse with the science being further confirmed in a, in a discouraging manner in terms of what's happening to our climate. Um, we are now having six, seven, eight, nine new senators who refuse to acknowledge what even George W. Bush acknowledged a decade ago, and his father years before that, that this is real and something needs to be done. So, but this isn't the first time that, you know, in the kind of tail end of, a, of an eight-year presidency that there has been a shift like this where, you know, the midterm elections create a, a, a hostile environment between the administration and the House and the Senate. And after all, we still have Obama in office, and he is definitely not a climate change denier. So what practical things can actually happen in the next two years that can set us back? I mean, are we just going to be, you know, maybe treading water for two years? Or are there are things that, that you're actually worried are, are going to happen? Yeah. Well, a, a, as you know, a lot of scientists say we don't have the 
time to tread water, but putting that aside, treading water may be the best we can hope for. Um, Republicans, you know, get a lot of attention for talking about repealing Obamacare now that they control both sides of Capitol Hill. They really, in a lot of ways, can't, though they will do a lot to take their wax at it. It'd be hard for them to repeal the whole thing. But uh, I think as important to them will be going after um, EPA regulations that Obama has implemented, has gotten through, that uh, deal with emissions that relate to climate change. And whether they're restrictions on coal or other f- forms of, um, of, of, of pollution, they you know, can play havoc with some of this stuff. They can try and budget fights to refuse to f- give funding to the EPA for overseeing and implementing and, 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 and basically managing these regulations. Now, Obama will have a choice of fighting over that. You know, in this new world, political world, neither side can really do too much unilaterally. They each have some leeway. They can, the Senate can, Republicans can block appointments and they can not pass legislation and budgets. And Obama can veto legislation that the Republican House and Senate send to him. But uh, there's a lot that can be done. And a lot of fights in Washington do not get fought sort of in a... In a, in a standalone fashion, things get combined. So the Republicans will, you know, have a bill to fund the U.S. government, the entire government, and they'll throw what we call riders into that that will prevent the EPA from going ahead with regulations or or enacting regulations that have already, you know, uh, been passed or just over or doing the work that needs to be done to make sure that the regulations are doing what they're supposed to do in these giant budget bills send them to Obama and say, okay, if you don't accept this, there'll be a government shutdown. And the president might be forced to veto and say, well, I'm not going to accept it. Send this to me without that writer, without that provision. So there will be a lot of fighting over environmental regulations. We already have heard in some of the first press conferences from the new folks coming in, Republicans, and from Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, who will become the, uh, the majority leader, about Environmental regulations uh, strangling American businesses. It's a line that they play over and over and over again. And that will be their sort of the point of their spear in going after these regulations. So I think um, we certainly won't make progress. Uh, I don't remember the number offhand, but it's something like 15 out of 17 members of the Repub- of Republican members in the House Science Committee don't accept. Uh, climate change as human-induced. And so we're not making a lot of progress in Congress to begin with. But now the question is whether they'll be able to force change that goes backwards. And so there's one other thing that sort of seems to be in the news, and that's the Keystone XL pipeline. Yes. You know, I thought even Canada was moving away from that idea. Yes. is Is it still alive? Well, it's still it's still alive. What's the old Monty Python joke? I'm not dead yet. Um, and the president, you know, politically did not want to, you know, kill it outright um, before the elections for fear of giving Republicans a phony issue. You know, they talk about how it's, you know, we need it for energy independence and we need it for jobs. When we're closer to energy independence, 
by certain measurements than we've ever been, mainly because of the fracking boom, but also that a lot of the jobs created will not be long-term jobs in America, but elsewhere. Um, but in any event, you know, he was able to keep this in an independent review process that's still ongoing and that may or may not happen, but it will become part of this back and forth between the White House and the Republican Congress, uh, whether it's put into these sort of spending bills that I've talked about uh, a moment ago or on its own. Uh, Republicans just still see this as a hammer to use against the president. And, you know, I don't know which way he's going to come down on this. Um, and and uh, he is, you know, he's a practical, pragmatic type of fellow. And if it's part of a deal that he feels he has to make, but he gets other things that are good for the environment and, 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 and good, good for working Americans, um, I can see him, you know, swallowing a bitter pill and accepting some form of the pipeline. Um, depending how Republicans go about it, I can also see him putting up a fight. So uh, this thing just ain't ain't done yet, and it will you know it will be decided within a pretty ugly larger political context. So in a kind of um, art imitates life way, Chris Nolan's new film Interstellar is opening up this weekend and it, it presents a, a view of the world as if maybe maybe as if Republicans will have run the government yes. for the next 20 years and we've we've completely destroyed this planet and have to look to other planets. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to, to interview David Grinspoon and uh, talk about this movie. Well, the you know, it's a big movie. It's getting a lot of attention and it has a climate change angle which um and part of which which is surprising and people can listen to the interview I did with David because we discussed that. Um but I thought, you know, David Grinspoon is one of the most uh prominent astrobiologists um on our planet. He studies our planet, he studies planets uh, elsewhere, and he's very much interested in the um, in the search for life you know, beyond our realm. And this whole movie, Interstellar, is about you know we we've, we've screwed up the planet so bad through climate change and other things that we can't feed ourselves anymore, and we need a new home, and we need to find a new planet. So there's a lot of science involved in this, and you know all the buzz about the movie is that Chris Nolan and his brother who wrote wrote the script, took the science very seriously. And they consulted with uh, a number of prominent scientists about how to travel great distances throughout, you know, across space, you know, how other, what other planets might, might we find. And they even have, I won't give away too much now, sort of a scientific way of dealing with what you might call the gravity problem that keeps us tethered to the planet we're born on. And so there's a lot of science in the movie. Um, and David Grinspoon, uh, a fellow who I've known for, for a couple of decades because we went to school together a long time ago, um, was brought in very early in the process at one of the first meetings when the um, filmmakers wanted to talk to scientists about the, this project when it was a two-page treatment and when Steven Spielberg uh, was thought to be the fellow directing it. So um, having been 
present at creation, so to speak. Uh, I wanted, you know, uh, the other night, uh, David and I attended the premiere of it here in Washington, and then we sat down to talk about the science, the science fiction and the science reality of Interstellar. Okay, so let's take a short break, and we'll be back with David's interview of David Grinspoon. This week's episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from, on topics ranging from politics to science to the classics. What it lets you do is listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And that's not all. Audible is also offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and pick one of their 150,000 plus titles to download for free. Maybe you want to hear more from David Korn, who is our guest host for this week. Audible has two of his books, Showdown, the inside story of how Obama fought back against Boehner, Cantor, and the Tea Party, and Hubris, the inside story of spin scandal and the selling of the Iraq War. You can download one of these for free right now by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Hey, producer Adam Isaac here. I just wanted to quickly mention that while David and David do their best to avoid any significant spoilers, they do talk about the science of some specific scenes in Interstellar. So if you're worried about knowing anything about the movie before you see it, you might want to watch it before you listen. But as a spoiler hater myself who hasn't yet seen the movie, their conversation didn't bother me. Back to the show. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, David Grinspoon. Hi there. Nice to be joining you. Uh, you and I last night saw this uh, new movie, Interstellar, the sci-fi epic directed by Chris Nolan, and it stars Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, and Jessica Chastain. Now, as a prominent astrobiologist, you, someone who has focused on researching planetary development and the possibility of life on other planets, you were, for a brief moment in time, involved in an early meeting about this project, I think with Steven Spielberg, when he was assigned to be the director, was interested. Um, tell me about that. What brought you together and what did you guys talk about? Oh, it was um, very early in the project. I think it was right at the beginning. And um, there was sort of a meeting of the minds that a bunch of us were invited to that was actually on the Caltech campus. And they had, it was really fun. They had some astronomers and astrobiologists and uh, other, I think, like psychologists and, mm -hmm. and all these people. And they, they sort of presented the very basic premise of the film and asked us to brainstorm on some of the themes and they recorded the whole thing. And yes, Spielberg showed up and he brought his dad. That was <laughs> kind of fun. And, um, you know, it was just a very wide ranging discussion. I don't know if ultimately, you know, how many of our ideas filtered into the final film and that, that what I remember of the treatment that we saw at that time, you know, resembled only uh, in very bare bones way the final film. It had some of the same themes of getting to other planets mm -hmm. and using black holes, but that was kind of it. You know, it didn't have a lot of the the, the plot in in it yet. Right. Uh, you mentioned that Stephen Hawking's uh, Stephen Hawking played a role in the treatment originally. What what, what did they want him to do? Yeah, it seems uh, if if uh, memory serves me that the original story actually had uh, Hawking as a character in the film who was going to be sent into orbit and um, experiencing weightlessness is something that uh, that helped him with his uh, disability. And I think, uh, you know, I don't know how much of this I'm 
con- conflating now with just you know it's it's been a few years but but i think there was even a love interest and you know uh oh so stephen, Haw- stephen hawking's in love in, in space. outer space yeah exactly you know which you know and those themes of love and space are still in the final movie so yeah, you know yes. it's just like uh, uh hawking's not in there anymore but there are other brilliant physicists with uh various abilities and and um <laughs> lack thereof so you know i guess I- it evolved well, I think I would have liked to see him in space with a with a with a with a love interest, maybe even some sort of sex scene. That would have been fun. That would have been cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now the premise of the movie, and we're not going to give away too much here, is that the Earth is dying, at least in its capacity to produce food for the human race. So we have to find another planet. But to get to any of the possible new homes out there, the space explorers have to go through a wormhole that was somehow created by some other entity, presumably far off in some far distant galaxy, far, 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 far away. Now, does this make any sense scientifically? Do do wormholes exist? Uh, Can they be stellar shortcuts? And can they be created? Uh, Those are good questions. I I, I would say, you know, it's sort of pushing... The edge of what is scientifically possible, uh, you know, it helps solve a problem. There's a big problem if you're going to have any kind of a fictional plot involving travel to other stars. That if you do it with normal physics, it's going to take hundreds of years, and who's got the time for a movie that you know lasts yeah. that long? Yeah. And that's the whole thing with Star Trek. Well, they we had warp drive, and and so wormhole is sort of the modern yeah. version of warp drive. And yeah. and yeah, there are actually solutions to Einstein's uh, general relativity that produce these structures that have mm-hmm. been called wormholes where, uh, you know, there's a geometry of space-time and, and it can connect different places that are in normal space are very distant in the universe. So yeah. sort of in theory, you could do that. The problem is if you actually look at how that might work, it doesn't really work. Like you'd end up ripping apart everything that went into the wormhole. And that would be a problem. It's not like NASA <laughs> is actually working on this, you know? So it's sort of, it's a way to have your plot device kind of fit with physics. Because it's kind of like, it's kind of like shoots and ladders the way they use it, right? Exactly. Uh, and they, they do one, you know, to explain it in the movie, they sort of put a point on a piece of paper. And they draw a line to a point at the bottom of the page. And they go, this is a very, very, very long distance. We could not do this in any traditional way. But then what they do is they fold the paper in a half. And they take the pen, the scientist, and puts it through the two points and says, this is our wormhole. This is how we get from point A to point B. Now, is that a somewhat scientifically accurate reflection of what a wormhole might be? You're kind of bending space in some time continuum? Absolutely. I, I actually really loved that scene because that was exactly how a physicist would explain a wormhole. In fact, I'm willing to bet that that is taken right out of Kip Thorne, who was the is the sort of Caltech genius who was a an advisor and I think uh, a producer on this film. And that is exactly how Kip Thorne would describe a wormhole. And he's the guy that came up with wormholes, basically, yeah. is that, you know, if you imagine space... Normally, you can't get from here to here easily, mm-hmm. but if you imagine that you're bending space, then you can take this shortcut across. And yeah, and, yeah that that scene was great uh, from a scientific point of view because that's exactly how a physicist would explain it. Now, the movie deals a lot with the theory of relativity and the relationship between time, space, and gravity. Um, and it seems pretty serious. As you note, Kip uh, Thorne, who is really one of the leading physicists who understands relativity, was involved in, in, in working on this movie. And so 
do you agree with me that at least in the setup to the movie, you know, the setup to like the, you know, the final conclusion, they take the science pretty seriously? Well, yes and no. And, and here, you know, I'm finding my, I have, I'm sort of balancing my inner snob with my, uh, you know, just sort of delight in the fact that people are interested in a movie on these themes, which are yeah. themes that I, yeah. that I love. But, you know, there, there, there is a, a level of critique I can't help but, apply to this and i would say go ahead (laughs) well i would say the science is spotty in that it's interesting that they had kip thorne involved and obviously they paid a lot of attention to relativity and space time and and those themes and yet there's this whole other theme about what happens to planets what happens to the earth and these other planets that they go and try to find and we don't want to say too many spoilers but they go and find planets and there's you know conditions on them stuff happens (laughs) And, and the planetary parts of the film I actually thought were really weak. And of course, that's, that's my bailiwick. Yeah. But, um. Weak in what way? But, well, for instance, um, they described this ecological disaster on Earth. Yeah. And again, I like the fact they're talking about that and raising consciousness and all. But and, 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 and we say it's sort of climate changey without them saying climate change. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's clear, it's clear that it's climate change and that we screwed yeah. up the Earth and now we're reaping, yeah. you know, that's all. A good theme, but the, the specific things they say about it, they say, oh, there's this blight and it's building up the nitrogen and that's going to draw down the oxygen. And anybody that knows about planetary atmospheres is going to sit there at that point and go, that's a bunch of BS. And it's like, it's not that that ruins the movie for most people, but <laughs> why, couldn't they, why couldn't they run it by somebody? And it wouldn't change the plot. They Where were you s- in that meeting? Yeah, exactly. They could have said like slightly smarter things and more realistic things. And then there are th- aspects to the planets they get to which also don't make sense from sort of a basic physics like no there wouldn't be and again i don't know like well i'll say some spoilers and you can decide to edit them out if you want but you know there's a planet with with ice clouds well this is what i was going to ask and you they're they're flying frozen clouds right and that's, I, 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 that's bs okay you, there are clouds made of ice on earth as well as other planets but they're little particles of ice and if you got up to the cloud it would be all fluffy and you could fly through it you couldn't stand on it and land a ship on it it's not like it's going to be solid ice yeah. something like that would fall because of gravity, gravity. <laughs> which is one of the themes of the movie by the way gravity yeah. so it's like you know and and again it's like is that so crucial to the plot like they couldn't uh run it by a planetary scientist who said well no why don't you have this other aspect of the planet that's tricky that actually isn't completely incompatible with reality uh and then yeah there's a you know another potential spoiler and i'll let you decide whether to edit it but there's a planet around a black hole a couple of planets yes. around a black hole and you know some Physicists might quibble about whether that is even possible or stable. But one obvious problem is when they landed there, it was daylight. But there's no sun, and a black hole doesn't put out light. So where's the oh, light coming from? <laughs> details, details. Now, now, along this vein, I had sort of, you know, uh, I understand your your fixation on the um, on the depictions of planetary environments. But um, again, trying not to spoil too much. At the very end of the movie, uh, many of the naughty plot dilemmas are resolved when a character enters a black hole far from Earth and is somehow able to communicate to others back home in the past over this great distance. Now, science or magic? I would say it's like on the fine line between science and magic. If you If you wanted to find a topic... You know, if you were at a cocktail party with a bunch of physicists who had a few drinks and you said, (laughs) I like the idea already, (laughs) which which I've been to, you know, and this is the kind of thing that comes up. And, and somebody said, 
name a topic that's really on the edge between science and magic. Somebody would say time travel through black holes because you can find some equation where it sort of maybe works. But then, of course, if you actually have time travel, it introduces all these horrible paradoxes about what if you went back and like – told your mother not to marry your father yeah. and then yeah, all this yeah. stuff so I I, I I in the movie i found it suspiciously close to magic and that was one thing that bothered me a little bit it was kind of like uh, they needed to tie up the plot and then well and then there's a black hole and magical things happen and so everything's fine <laughs> you know? and they talked i mean they, they they tried to do it in a very sophisticated manner because they they, they had this concept in the end that that they were they were working in three dimensional space in a five dimensional new environment that that some beings or some entities had been able to take I guess it's a, a time and gravity and treat them as dimensions adding them to our normal three dimensions and all these magical things happened uh, I was I was sitting there just really kind of confused can you have a five dimensional system which manifests itself in a three-dimensional way. Well, again, I kind of like that aspect of it. I, yeah. I, I sort of like the fact, in a way, that you're confused about that because, <laughs> well, no, because reality on that level is confusing. It's one of the weird things about modern physics is that we do find that there are apparently these other dimensions that we don't directly experience, but that explain some aspects of the overall yeah. geometry and you know, uh, um, reality of of our universe, and so. When you encounter the real physics of that stuff, you do get this feeling that you're having now of going, well, that's confusing. How could that be? And so I'm not sure of the specific realism of how that was all depicted, but I do like the idea that there's a movie that is going to get people thinking, wow, really? There could be other dimensions? And that, you know, that is evoking something that people actually have when they encounter modern physics. Yes. And I do have to say that, uh, you know, I was on Facebook this morning kind of, um, you know, bitching about this movie back and forth. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I actually, I have very mixed feelings about it. I, th there were aspects of it that I love. So I wasn't just like ragging on it. But, you know, of course, with my nerd friends, we were talking about the science and could this be and what, what was right and what was wrong. And one of my friends is another scientist said, look, my son went to the movie and he came home and all he wanted to do was find out more about black holes. And, yeah. and, and when I heard that, you know, that's like definitely in the thumbs up category if it's going to get people thinking about this stuff. So can this do for, for black holes what Jurassic Park did for dinosaurs? <laughs> or the, th I mean, cause I, I can I mean, other sci-fi things, films and shows have played with the theory of relativity and the connection between time, space and gravity. But this is, I think, to my mind, the one that's done it the most pseudo seriously yeah. as a hollywood endeavor yeah. and you know and and in the most sort of sophisticated way that may actually get you thinking about it and not just use it as a device to get from point a to very far away point b yeah well i mean part of my problem i think with this film to the extent that i do have a problem with it is that i think it wasn't quite sure what kind of film it it is it, because there is a lot of science fiction that kind of plays with these themes but doesn't take them all that seriously. And you right. mentioned Jurassic Park. Nobody yeah. really rags on Jurassic Park for not being realistic because it's a great yarn. Yeah. But this film is kind of presenting itself as a new 2001. Yeah. I'm saying that both because there's so many obvious quotes in the film of yes. 2001 and the way it's being marketed and promoted is like, we've got serious scientists. This is real science. And so it does make you tend to look at it through that lens mm -hmm. and hold it to a bit of a higher standard. And... When you apply that standard, I'd say it doesn't hundred percent. You know, it it doesn't fail, but it doesn't get an A plus. You know, there's it's it's a, it's spotty. 
So, um, but yeah, if it's making people think about climate change and think about other dimensions and think about other planets out there, then, you know, that's all good. But here's one problem that, that, or pseudo problem, possible problem that I had with it. The movie presumes that climate change will threaten the planet in a very serious way. But the tagline of the movie is the end of, the end of the earth will not be the end of us. And a lead character, Michael Caine, who plays the scientist in charge of all this, he's gone from Alfred to the gigantic, you know, to basically the Stephen Hawking, Hawking of, of this movie. He says at some point, we're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. Now, so ultimately, is the message that we don't have to worry about trashing the earth because some smart guys are going to pick us up and move us somewhere else? Yeah, that was- I, I, I think I'm glad you pointed that out. That tagline, uh, we, it, the end of the earth will not be the end of us or yes. something like that is, I, I actually, when I thought about that, it is problematical for the, for the reason you raise. Uh, and, and the reality of it, of course, is, Scientifically, it's probably the opposite. It's quite possible that the end, end, end of us will not be the end of the earth. You know, we, yeah. even if we, um, really screw things up and things go badly for us and our yeah. civilization, um, the earth is, is actually pretty resilient. That is the, the current species here will have a mass extinction, but life will not extinguish and the yeah. earth will recover and go on as, as the uh, famous biologist Lynn Margulis, who invented the Gaia hypothesis, used to say, Gaia is a tough bitch. <laughs> and you know it's like yeah. she can take it but yeah. but what we we're actually more fragile than mm. life so and and then there's the moral implication that like well it doesn't really matter you know there's other planets out there the heck with this one so i found that bothersome of course in the very long run if say we're successful in getting through our current little problems yeah. of yeah. of being a technological civilization and we last for thousands and even millions and billions of years ultimately the earth and the sun will run their course so if we become one of those super wise beings that are implied in this film that makes wormholes and stuff, at some point we'll have to deal with a problem of moving once the yes. Earth and the Sun have run their course. But now but we're we talking re- billions that, of years in the future. But that really truly is a can we can kick down the road for a while. A long time. <laughs> and only at that billion-year timescale is it true that the end of Earth need not be the end of us or whatever whatever that yeah. phrase was. Well, let me, let, this is, I think, a good lead into some of your work because you now hold the chair of astrobiology at the Library of Congress while being advi- an advisor to NASA and a scientist on the Venus Express st- spacecraft and the Curiosity rover that's at work at, on Mars as we speak. And you're working on a book on the Anthropocene. You, you say it for me. The Anthropocene. The Anthropocene, uh, which... Well, I'm just going to let you explain what the Anthropocene is because it ties in with just what we were talking about with the um, end of the of the Earth, possibly. Yeah, the Anthropocene is a proposed name for our current geological epoch. Just like we were talking about Jurassic Park, you know, there's all yeah. these names for geological epochs. Jurassic is a famous one, yeah. and the current geological time is uh, referred to as the Holocene. Mm. And the idea is. The proposal is that we've entered a new layer, if you will, in the geologic strata yeah. that is defined by humans as a geologic force that is, if not completely running the Earth, certainly a dominant competing force with the other ones. And it's, uh, it's an, I, I like the idea because it forces us to think of ourselves in geologic time and mm-hmm. realize, sort of own up to the fact that we have become a major player, that we're changing the atmosphere, the land surface, 
obviously the the hydrological cycle, the you know the biological rhythms mm-hmm. of this planet in a major way. It's controversial because people also think, well, maybe it's really arrogant to name a geological age after ourselves. <laughs> yeah. uh, and 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 I see that point of view, but I also see it as sort of. The first step is, you know, like they say in uh, whatever addiction recovery, the first step is recognizing the problem. (laughs) And so if we don't own up to the fact that we have become this major force on Earth, we don't have any chance of sort of getting a handle on our behavior. Right, right. Um, And so in in thinking about this, I mean, you come to this from from the perspective of studying planetary development, but also with a very particular interest in looking for signs of life in other parts of the universe and in, in other planets. And when we've discussed this previously, you talked about how an, a geological era like this can really sort of shift the development of a planet in a way that has implications for the continuation of life on the planet, but also for the way of discerning possible evidence of life elsewhere. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people are talking about the Anthropocene now in, in science and also in even in other fields in the humanities. It's sort of a hot topic. My particular angle on it is to look at it as an astrobiologist. And astrobiology can, is concerned with the relationship between planets and life. So I'm sort of saying, let's step back and look at this transition that's happening to the Earth now mm-hmm. and compare it to sort of the life stories even of other planets and the long-term history of the Earth and the other transitions it's gone through. What is really different about this transition. We're not the first species to radically change the planet. The cyanobacteria did that two billion years ago when they made all this oxygen that screwed up the planet for other species. And we're not the first, you know, the Earth has been through a lot of radical changes. And yet, obviously, there's something different. It's our supposed Mm -hmm. intelligence and our supposed consciousness Mm -hmm. and awareness. And yet, if we've got this consciousness and awareness, why are we unable, why do we seem like we're watching this happen to the Earth, unable to change it? Mm -hmm. So it's, to me, it's a, looking at this as a planetary event is another way of sort of getting a handle on who we are and what we are. And, And I'm trying to look at how the deep time and deep space perspective sheds light on sort of the nature of this transition on the planet that we are participating in. And that does lead to the question of extraterrestrial life, because if you regard this as a kind of transition that a planet can go through, what's happening to Mm -hmm. the Earth now through us, Mm -hmm. you can say, well, so is that something that other planets might have gone through? And what would be the consequences for life in the universe? Mm -hmm. And one of my conclusions is that, you know, we are at this branching point where depending on the actions that we take in the next century, this Anthropocene, this, this time of so-called intelligent intervention in the planet will either be very short-lived because there's ways one can imagine that would be self-limiting and self-destructive or very long-lived because if you really learn to use intelligence to work with Mm -hmm. the earth you could forestall a lot of threats you know that asteroid coming towards the earth that did in the dinosaurs doesn't have to do in us so so we're at a branching point between very short time being here or huge longevity well what you're saying you're almost saying you know i don't want to say tipping point but we're at a we're at a way station where if we can get past this if we you know the threats that we present to the planet if we can resolve them and move on and maybe even find ways to use our technology to engage with the planet you know whether it's geoengineering or some other things that we haven't thought about yet that therefore we might have Smooth sailing. Get past this rocky patch, you Amer- you know, you Americans and people of the world. Just get past this and then smooth sailing into millennia? 
Yeah, see, I, that, that, that is exactly what I'm saying, is that it's not, um, it's not a smooth continuum of outcomes. It's actually a bifurcation. There's, there's the short outcome where we don't get it together and one can imagine all these threats coming back even in the next century or two to, yeah. you know, sort of destroy our civilization. But I think if we make it through that bottleneck of the next couple centuries, it will be because we've learned how to be a different kind of entity that really uses technology in a way that will actually ensure huge longevity. And so if you think of that bifurcation, that's where the implications for other civilizations in the galaxy comes in, because mathematically, even you can show, if you believe in that bifurcation, yeah. that anybody we detect or encounter is vastly likely to have gone through that transition and have yeah. sort of solved that problem of how to be a technological civilization living on a planet and not do itself in. So uh, so if we see any like giant billboards out there saying life here it's likely that we can learn a few things from them that they they went through this uh, uh this testing period of being smart enough to do harm to the planet and figuring out how not to do that that's right it's very unlikely that we would find somebody in our current situation because the time because frame our is so current short. situation is unstable it's yeah. like it's why if you look out at a forest you see a lot of tall oak trees but not necessarily that many um, little shrubs because the little shrubs are not as noticeable and they don't last as long. But once you're a tall oak tree, you might last for a hundred years. You know, so we are in this in this brief young transitional phase that doesn't last long. So anybody that we find will be evidence. Well, for one thing, it'll be proof of concept. You can make it through. It'll be hopeful, yeah, yeah. I think. And that also gives gives SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, a, a, another dimension of sort of a kind of hopeful exercise that we're not just finding out what's out there, but we're searching for proof that, that it can be done, this challenge well, we're it, facing. Well, it also gives it maybe a pragmatic angle, too. If other societies figured out how to do this, uh, you know, maybe we can learn now. There's, but, but when talking about this, there seems to be something very, you know, you mentioned self-centered earlier. Like we're using a lot of concepts that seem to be very um, human-centered, very much keyed in with our society. The the ability to learn lessons, the ability to you know to to to, to interpret things from over, uh, to to recognize life in a certain way, and. You know, I wonder if, you know, if, if a lot of this stuff is just so assumption rich that it's, um, you know, that it's really pretty narrow and what, well, you know, and that the rest of the universe, it, it, these assumptions may not relate to yeah. the rest of the universe. It's an excellent point. And, 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 you know, in astrobiology, we always have to check ourselves in that way because not even getting to the question of intelligent life, but when we're looking for life elsewhere, well, yeah. what are we looking for? And in what way is that not just a projection of ourselves? We say, yeah. well, it has to be carbon-based. Well, does it really? Or is that just because we're not smart enough to think of another system? Yeah. So we in astrobiology spend a lot of time debating those kinds of questions yeah. and trying to figure out if our assumptions are narrow-minded and and they may be but it's it's like it's definitely something that that gets brought up and we focus on yeah. about now when you talk about intelligence that of course is a loaded term and yeah. all our assumptions about that are loaded but there's a way in which you can turn it around too one of the arguments that people always bring to bear about why SETI won't succeed and why in fact we are alone is what people call the fermi paradox which is the famous question well where are they if there is intelligent life out there, then it's been out there for a long time and it's had time to colonize the whole galaxy and it should be obvious and there be, should yeah. be spaceships here and they're not. And so therefore, because they're not obvious, they're not there. 
But to me, that carries a huge assumption that they're like us <laughs> because it it assumes we assume that intelligent behavior is you're maximizing energy you're maximizing your population yeah. you're multiplying exponentially and you'll keep doing that throughout the galaxy and that's the assumption that this fermi paradox is yeah. based on well if if they exist they they would behave like that and then we would see them but actually what we're facing now with this anthropocene dilemma that i call it the anthropocene dilemma mm-hmm. you know how how do we how do we deal with this situation we're learning that that's not intelligent behavior that actually this unquestioning assumption of exponential growth being being good and necessary for intelligent life is self-destructive and self-defeating and that real intelligence probably won't have that quality and so therefore they might have the signs of them existing in the galaxy much might be much more subtle than we would assume if we assume they're just like us and have this will to keep expanding maybe they're just like to stay home and t- Grow their own food in their backyard and 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 just Twitter with each with each other. You right, know? <laughs> right. Well, maybe they figured out that the key to longevity, the key to to survival over millennia and longer, mm-hmm. is to not just assume that it's good to sort of eat up every single resource and maximize your numbers and maximize everything all the time. Less is more. That or, at least, <laughs> or at least uh, <laughs> equilibrium is good. Yeah. And you're writing a book on all this now, right? Yeah, I'm I'm writing a book. The working title is Terra Sapiens, which means Wise Earth. And one of the things I'm doing is exploring reasons for avoiding nihilism and pessimism. Not in, hopefully, a naive way, but I think that when you do stand back and take this really big picture view, you realize we don't know anything about what the world's going to be like a thousand years from now, even a century from now. And I've done a lot of reading of predictions of the future yeah. written in the past. And and I don't think we're particularly good at knowing what's coming. And so I think that a lot of the pessimism, it, you know, it comes from the sense of urgency, which is yeah. good. We need yeah. to deal with the way we're behaving on this planet. But I, I rail against the reflexive pessimism that then leads you to say, you know, we're, we're completely effed. We, yeah, yeah. we, there's nothing we can do. And that's a yeah. dangerous place to go. And so I'm really trying to react against that and point out all the ways in which the possibilities are much vaster than we might imagine. It is tough to be realistic about the threats and not be pessimistic about the outcomes. Well, one has to, if you're being realistic, you have to acknowledge that the worst case scenarios are realistic, but yeah. they're not the only realistic scenarios. Yeah. And I think people also, get hung up on sort of thinking that optimism is the enemy because it is, you know, they equate optimism with denial. And I think that's actually bad. That's a failure of the imagination. And we need positive visions of the future to work towards. We don't, not just uh, apocalypse to work against, you know. Well, I think think that's right because in terms of the climate change debate we have now, um, it's, denial, sometimes outright denial in terms of many of the Republicans who were just elected to, to office. And there's the other type of denial of people who might even accept it and believe it, but think it's too big or the, the cost of doing something are too, too big to bear. And by the way, there are 17 other problems in front of us right now. Right. Well, as you mentioned, this election that just happened is not a good week to be promoting optimism, perhaps. <laughs> and uh, but you know, in a certain sense, I think that's the difference between between your world of um, of policy mm-hmm. uh, and 
my world of planets, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, you know, I'm trying, not that I think, I, I think obviously policy is very important and I, I want policy to be informed by these kind of considerations, yeah. but I'm trying to step back and say, let's not for the moment worry about what's happening this week and this year. I'm glad people are worrying about that, but the particular discussion I'm espousing is saying, well, let's step back for a minute and look at the thousand year view and there is there are huge transitions going on now and i think there's actually not to sound too sort of woo new age about it but there is actually a transition in human consciousness going on to a more global identity with the internet and yeah. all you know twitter and all this stuff and just more awareness of of the rest of the world and i think that climate change is really on the radar of the world in which, in a way, it was not 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And it's frustratingly slow when you think about elections and policy. And, you know, if we're if we're unlucky, it may absolutely be too little too late. But there's a lot of slop there in these predictions. And I, I do feel a transition. And I think that also the people are ahead of out ahead of the so-called leaders. If you look at polls, there is yeah. gradually more awareness of this as a problem. Yeah. It's just, as you say, not people's number one problem because they're worried about um, you know, their bills and things. But I, I think that there is a growing sense that we are a global entity and that we have global problems that require glo global solutions. It's just frustratingly slow, but that's the nature of the beast. Well, let's um, kind of end it with that optimistic note. But let me tell people that you have a website called funkyscience.net and that you tweet uh, with the Twitter handle Dr. Funky Spoon, D R F U N K Y. Spoon, S P O O N. Can you explain that Twitter name? Ah, well, <laughs> the spoon part is obvious because my name is Grinspoon, and um, which in itself was a you know an Ellis Island transcription error, right? <laughs> okay, the, yes. the, the, the ancestors yeah. coming over yeah. and they say, "What's your name, Greenspoon?" And some some idiot writes down Grinspoon, and yes. <laughs> thus a name is born. But and then the funky part is just uh, my business is funky science, but that comes from the my the other hat I wear, which is that I'm also a musician and like to play funk music, and so that's all of me in Doctor Funky Spoon. Okay, well, thank you, David Grinspoon, Doctor Funky Spoon, for joining us here at Inquiring Minds. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been fun talking with you. Great interview, David. And I have to say, I'm even more excited to see Chris Nolan's film. I love his work, especially Memento, one of his earlier films. Mm -hmm. And I actually make my biological psychology students at the University of San Francisco, where I teach, watch the film when we get to the memory lectures, because it's so accurate in terms of how it portrays amnesia compared to every other Hollywood portrayal of, of the problem. So, um, so I, you know, I, I'm delighted to hear that, that, that he's tackling now the next big topic. And, you know, in your interview, you mentioned that certainly um, sometimes there are liberties that, that uh, whether it's Chris Nolan or whoever, take in terms of the science. And you guys point out some really great um, things that don't really work out. And, and I have the same problem with Inception, which is um, one of his movies that came after Memento. Uh, but ultimately, I still think that he's trying to tackle some very deep uh, scientific and philosophical issues. And so, you know, your, your impression walking out of the film, you know, did you really feel satisfied in the end or did you feel like there was still a lot that was left unsaid? I didn't feel satisfied, but I felt engaged. Uh, the ideas that he's playing with, you know, theory of relativity, the connection between time, space, and gravity are really intriguing. And they explain, as, as, as I talked about with David Grinspoon, they explain certain parts of that 
really well. Um, the ending, which again, I can't give away too much for those people who want to rush out to see it, um, tries to tie up, you know, all these loose ends with a, you know, within this context of five dimensions instead of three dimensions. And it all becomes rather, the science becomes rather convenient. <laughs> <laughs> to to dealing with the to the plot, they wrote themselves almost into a corner, but then the science takes them out of the corner, and um and I was left kind of thinking, well, you know, at some point did they kind of like cut loose the the line tethering the plot to the science, and thought they kind of did, but still I ended up thinking a lot about these terms at the end, um and 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 the whole notion of relativity, so. Um, anything that gets you thinking while you're watching spaceships and, you know, Matthew McConaughey and Jessica Chastain and Anne Hathaway, I think is a pretty good deal. And, um, especially when you see it on IMAX and you throw in all these philosophical notions about love and the relationship of love to time memory, which is part of this. You'd like, you'll like that. And the relationship between memory and time and space. I mean, it's, it's a lot to sort of chew on if you want to. At the same time, you can just eat the popcorn and enjoy the rush. Well, yeah, it sounds great. And the, the, one of the best things I think coming out of this movie is this notion that, you know, having accurate science is actually a selling point. So we've come a long way in Hollywood. <laughs> so thanks, David Korn, for uh, taking the time to interview David Grinspoon for this episode of Inquiring Minds. It was a great pleasure. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And I also want to let you know that video from our interviews with Adam Savage is now on YouTube, so you can check that out too. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering our listeners a free audiobook, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.